You may have a seat wherever you may be. Thanks so much uh, for being here. Welcome home. Welcome to Northridge. My name is Daniel. I get the honor of teaching uh, God's Word here this morning. If you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 14, uh, or if you have your phone or whatever device you may have, the best way to take notes along with today's uh, message is the Northridge app, so turn there. Um, It's been an amazing series, this series called Heaven, and Drew has set me up perfectly to close out this series in week four, Um, and he's done a phenomenal job the past couple of weeks talking about the place of heaven, the activity of heaven, what we will be like, what we will do in heaven. But like any um, good location, it's great to hear about that place, right? Like think of uh, friends that you may have had who've went on these like spectacular vacations, maybe at a resort, and they get back and they tell you like, oh my goodness, let me tell you about the food and and the service and the the excursions we went on, sitting on the beach or skiing on that resort. Like, let me tell you all about it. And at some point you get kind of fed up. You're like, okay, okay, okay. How can I get there? (laughs) Like, uh, tell me... Not only about that place, but how can I experience that too? Heaven is kind of like that, that it's amazing to talk about the place of heaven, but if we don't know how to get to heaven, none of the details really matter. And so today I'm striving to answer this one big question of like, how can I or how do I get to heaven? And I want to do this uh, by turning to God's word like we have throughout this whole series as the truth for our lives to say, what does the Bible, what does Jesus say the way to heaven is? But before we parachute into John chapter 14, it's important to know the context uh, of what Jesus is saying falls in. Uh, At the latter half of John's gospel, his message about Jesus' life, he zooms into the last few moments and weeks of Jesus' life. In John chapter 13, we find Jesus with his disciples enjoying a meal together, the the Last Supper, many call that. Um, And as they're enjoying this, Jesus tells them some really hard sayings, some really hard things to swallow. He, He tells them that he was going to be betrayed by one of his closest followers. Someone was actually in the room with them. Like imagine, put yourself in this scenario. You're in a room with uh, 12 of your closest friends and, and Jesus, the one you, you've put your entire life on pause to follow and do what he said, model your life after him. He, he tells you that he's going to be betrayed by someone in the room with you that you've spent the last three years of your life walking with, uh, sleeping beside, e- eating with, enjoying entire life, doing work with. Like somebody in that room is going to betray him. But but more than that, that Jesus tells them that everyone in the room will leave him at his most desperate hour, that most of the disciples would be nowhere to be found when Jesus needs them the most. This is a heavy moment that we parachute into in John's gospel. And in that, right after Jesus says that hard saying, and then he serves his disciples at that meal, he says these words, John chapter 14, verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, I, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back to take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Verse four, you know the way to the place where I'm going. Man, that's encouraging. Like, right, Jesus has said this really hard saying, 
And then he follows it up with, but don't worry. Don't let your hearts be heavy. Don't let them be troubled. I'm going to a place. I'm preparing that place for you. Yeah, it's going to be a, a rocky road when we get there, but you know where I'm going and you know how to get there. And when I read those four verses, it makes me flash back to freshman biology, sitting in a lecture hall, being like the kids, like, does everyone else lost as I am? Because if I'm in the room with the disciples, I would probably be the guy that's like, I don't, not sure if I know what you're talking about here. And, and you're just desperately hoping somebody raises your, the hand and asks the question that you have in your mind because you're like, I'm not willing to be that guy because everyone else apparently knows the answer to the professor's words and I just lost. Well, thankfully we have brave Thomas who shoots up his hand, as I imagine, in freshman biology and says this. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? <laughs> he's, he's brave. He's bold. He, he says the thing that probably all the disciples were thinking, just not willing to articulate. He says, I'm not sure what you're talking about. I know I'm supposed to have gotten it by now, but I haven't gotten it. What, tell me, Jesus, where are you going? And how do I follow you? Where do I go? And you know, we've all had big questions like this in our life. These big existential questions, these bigger questions of life. We've asked questions like, where do I come from? What is my purpose? Where am I going? And today, I, I seek to answer this one big existential question about life of how do I get to heaven? How do I get to heaven? It's a really important question. We've all been confronted with this question or maybe questions like this at some point in our life. Most of the time, people are confronted with this question at a funeral staring at a casket of a loved one or a family member or someone you were just relationally connected to and wondering, where are they now? Did their life just stop? Did it, is it just go into a void and it's all over? Are they in heaven? Are they in the other option, a place called hell? Where, where are they? What happens next? I wonder, I wish they could share some of that information with me. And I didn't want this to be all heavy in this moment, you know, because we've all asked that question and pondered on that question or a question like that at some point in our life. During tragedy, we asked that question the most. But I had some fun with this question of how do I get to heaven? So I pulled out my iPhone and I said, hey Siri, how do I get to heaven? She says, I'm not sure I understand. <laughs> that was her response. I love it when technology isn't so smart, right? So and since I didn't get a sufficient answer there, I, so I decided to Google it. I, I typed into Google how do I get to heaven? And I came up with a plethora of answers and many hundreds and hundreds of pages of so-called responses to how I get to heaven. And then I decided to take a step back and I asked the question, how would my close friends and my family members answer this question? How do I get to heaven? And then I thought about you guys, like you listening and tuning in at our online campus or maybe out in Webster or at Rochester campus. What's your answer to this important question. What's your answer to this important question? How do I get to heaven? And as I imagine being a data collector of getting all these answers in, hearing from Siri and Google and thinking about my friends and family and you guys in the room, I, I had to take a step back and wonder, what if there's different answers? What if there's different answers? Will, will that work? Will it work to have polar opposite answers to the same big question? 
And I want to point out up into this point in our text in Scripture in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 4, in verse 5, we haven't hit any problems yet. Like, we haven't hit any issues. Like, no major religion has an issue with the fact that Jesus says the things he said thus far. That he's going to leave, that he's preparing a place, that there's an afterlife, that there is a better place, that there's a place called, like, heaven, and, and he's going to prepare, prepare the way. He, he's going to prepare, and they know how to get there. It's like, great, awesome, good. The problem comes in what Jesus' response to Thomas's question is and what he says. This is Jesus' own words for what he says. He says, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now I want us to marinate on this, so let's read it together one more time out loud. Let these words sink in what Jesus says to the question that's been asked. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now when we wrestle with this reality, it confronts some things within us. Like it feels really, really unkind for Jesus to make these exclusive claims. The word the in the original language is a, is a word of exclusivity. So a, a more full meaning of that word would be I'm the only. So Jesus, he's saying, he's making it very abundantly clear that he's the only way. That Jesus says he is the only way to heaven. But this seems really, really unkind, if, I, if I'm just being honest. But I, taking a step back, if this is true, it is the most kind words he could ever say. If this is true, it's the most kind words that Jesus could ever say. Because in our culture, we live in a pluralistic society. We don't like being backed into a corner and saying there's only one way to do something, Right? But the reality is, is when we're presented with a question and there's two answers sitting on opposite sides, both of those answers could be false to this question. If you're a teacher, you're like, yeah, I, I mark answers wrong all the time on quizzes. One of them could be right and the other one could be wrong. But both answers to a, a, a question that sits polar opposites, both cannot be correct. They both can't be true. Both can be false. One can be true. The other can be false. But both can't be true. And thinking about this, it backs us in this corner and say, okay, what do we do with this? How do we wrestle this down? Well, the idea of something being the only isn't foreign to us in our culture. There's tons of things that you do every day that are the only that I had to think about and, and I want to share with you. Like the idea of one-way streets. Bosses who make you do something one particular way and you know there's an easier way, there's a better way, there's a faster way, but they're like, nope, this is the way. You have to do it like this. There's companies who have customer services that are really hard to reach on purpose, that you can't email, you can't jump into the chat, you can't shoot a text, you have to put the 800 number in and push five, then six, then four, then two, then eventually you may get to talk to a real person, right? And there's some, certain things that are sold in stores that you can't get anywhere else, and it's not the same if it's sold other places. Like, you need it fresh from that local place. You want that bread baked fresh, you don't want it stale and, and shipped in from somewhere else. You want it fresh right here locally. You know, February is coming up and two teams can't win the Super Bowl, right? That's right, go Bills, right? That's happened at both services, okay? Somebody has shouted 
Go Bills. Drew's not here, and so the Cowboys and the Bills both can't win the Super Bowl. Just so you guys didn't know that. One plus one always equals two. If you don't drink water, have oxygen in your lungs, if you don't eat, eventually you're going to die. That's the way. That's the way that we do it. But we like options. We like flexibility in our lives. And so when Jesus comes in and says something is the only, that he is the only way, we have to be confronted with this reality. Is what he is saying true? Because it's not what popular thinking says. There's this analogy in uh, popular thinking that God is like a mountain, And this analogy is given that, you know, in in a particular mountain, there may be multiple trails or pathways up a mountain. Some are smoother than others. um, But as long as you get to the top of the mountain, that's all that really matters. Some religions are like rocky paths, and it takes a lot of work to get up to the top of the mountain. And some religions are a smoother path. Like Jesus, he's the smoothest ramp up to the top of the mountain. But is that what Jesus says? Because it's not. Because if we're thinking about religion and, and God saying that he prepared a place, and if there are multiple pathways, it makes no sense for one of those pathways to be like, hey, God, why don't you send your son and he dies? It doesn't make sense if, if God's saying, okay, there's multiple pathways, there's multiple strands of truth that you could follow. It just matters that you get to me. It doesn't make sense that one of those ways is, yeah, how about we kill ourselves? That doesn't make sense. Like Jesus and his own words, is that what Jesus says? Is, does Jesus say, yeah, there's ways to heaven? Does he say, I'm a way? No, he says, Jesus says, I'm the only way. So with Jesus saying, I'm the only way, that's the, the truth that he presents. But I want to step back and ask the sub-question of why. Why is Jesus the only way? And I want to spend the rest of my time here this morning together answering this secondary question. Because Jesus, in his flow of conversation with his disciples, gives them comfort by saying they have what they need. They have a relationship with him, and that's what they need to ultimately be with God for forever and to their ultimate destination. And if you're a follower of Jesus in this room this morning, the chances are things I've set up to this point, you're like, amen, let's go home and watch some football. Like, but... If you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're more skeptical in nature, you're like, yeah, yeah, I've heard that argument before, Daniel. Like, you haven't told me anything I haven't heard, but I still don't believe you. I hope the rest of this message can serve one of two purposes. If you're a follower of Jesus, I hope this strengthens, encourages your faith, deepens it, your relationship with Jesus, to share that message with someone else. And if you're not, I hope that this next part of this message, the next 15 minutes, would be a challenge for you to consider faith, to put, go all in with Jesus. But to answer the question of why is Jesus the only way, we've got to start at the beginning. Page one of the Bible, there's this uh, God creates the world. He places the first humans, Adam and Eve, in the garden in a perfect world. Uh, Most scholars believe, as Drew taught throughout this series, that it's the first heaven um, placed in perfection with God. But in that first heaven in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were presented with a choice, the choice to follow God or the choice to follow their own way and sin against God and break that relationship. And they chose to do the opposite. They chose to break the relationship, not follow God's way. And we're told in scripture that their choice was our choice, all of humankind. Uh, Romans 5, 12 says it like this, sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. 
The truth that we learn here is that this choice changed everything and sin entered the picture. This choice impacted all of creation, the plants, the trees, the animals, even you and I, because this choice was our choice. And every uh, human that enters the picture, it was their choice. And you may be saying, but I wasn't there. I would have made the right choice. Well, Adam and Eve, uh, their names, Adam means humanity, Eve means the living, and they were acting as humans' representatives on our behalf. That's the picture that's painted all throughout Scripture, that Adam and Eve was humanity's representatives in the garden. And, you know, you, you may be like me and thinking, but I wouldn't have done that. I, I, if, I, if I would have been in the presence of a holy, perfect God, and he says, here's life and life to the full, and like, this is perfection, just don't eat from this one tree, just don't trust your own way, just do what I tell you, I, I would have made the right choice. I would have just done what God told me. And the reason that I think that, and the reason that we think that, is because we're really good at deceiving others. We're, we're really good at, at putting on a mask and making everyone else think we're better than we actually are, right? That we got it all together, that we, we're, we're good. You know, it's like, hey, how are you this morning? I'm good. I'm just, you know, blessed. Amen. But we're really good at like putting on that facade. But the reality is the person that you're the best at deceiving is, isn't actually others. It's yourself. It's the person in the mirror. And in a book published in 2004, the name of the book was called The Curse of Self by Mark Levery. And he referenced a survey done by the U.S. News and World Report where 1,000 Americans were asked this one simple question. Who is most likely to get into heaven? And at that time, President Bill Clinton, 2004, remember, he was given a 52% chance to make it into heaven. Michael Jordan came in at a whopping 65% chance to make it into heaven. Oprah Winfrey was given a 66% chance to make it into heaven. Mother Teresa was given a whopping 79% chance, all right? There was only one person that was outvoted. All those people, Bill Clinton, Oprah Winfrey, uh, Michael Jordan, uh, Mother Teresa, all these people, 90%. But So 90% of 1,000 Americans said this person was most likely to make it into heaven. You know who that was? Me. Just kidding, not me. <laughs> They wrote in me, themselves. They said, I don't know about Oprah. I don't know about Michael Jordan, Bill Clinton, Mother Teresa. But I know I, I'm at least making an A minus. I'm getting into heaven eventually. Right? 90% of Americans voted themselves in front of every other person when asked the question, who's most likely to make it into heaven? And that's because we're really good at deceiving. We're really good at deceiving ourselves. And that's not just a 2004 problem. That's like a right now problem as well. And if you're a parent, I'm not trying to step on your toes with this next illustration. I just want to put that in front of you before I said it. Um, about six weeks ago at our Rochester campus, I was sitting in the back of our kids' ministry environment in kindergarten through fifth grade, and we were doing a series on God's wisdom. And one of our large group uh, storytellers was doing a phenomenal job, and they were sharing, uh, and they opened up um, the, the lesson that morning, the, the talk that morning, with this question. Who's the wisest person you know? I'm sitting in the back of the room expecting them to shout, um, God or Jesus or my mom, my dad, my grandma, my grandpa, my coach, my teacher. But about 60 kindergarten through fifth graders, there was like this roar of this one answer that kind of surfaced at the, as soon as the words got, who's the wisest person you know? And they all shouted almost in one voice, me. 
And that's because that's their, their problem is our problem. It's we're all in this together that we think we're better than we actually are. But Paul says it like this. Let's read that verse one more time. Romans 5.12. He says that sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. That the Bible's answer in this question of what is our state is that we are all sinners. We all are sinners. That we all have brokenness in our heart. And this leads us to try to be our own solution. That me is the wisest person that I know. That I have noticed a problem, that I'm broken, that there's brokenness in the world, but I'm also the solution. That we try to be our own solution to all of our problems. Think about your life and and how you try to solve your own problems, that you can just muster enough strength, if you can just do better than you did the day before, if you can just try harder, if you can just attend church one more time, or or if I'll get there next Sunday, or whatever the case may be, we try to be our own solution. And the solution that we try to come up with is the good enough solution. Well, if I'm just good enough, right? If, If we start keeping a scorecard on our rights and wrongs, and we're we're almost scoring ourselves. And the goal becomes, if I can just do better this year than I did last year, or this week than I did last week, if I can just be better today more than I was yesterday. And the ultimate argument in all of our heads is, and if my good outweighs my bad, maybe I'll make it into heaven. I'll, I'll go to the good place rather than the bad place or the worse off place at the end of my life. And we start keeping score. The problem with our scorekeeping is it's a lot like how my father-in-law keeps score when we play golf. Um, and so there's a lot of fudging the numbers that happens, right? And so, you know, it's like we're, we're up on the tee box and when we're, we're shanking them into the trees, it's like, oh, that was a mulligan. That didn't count. Try again. It's like, oh, that was a mulligan. Try again. And he does it to me and he does it for him. And then we eventually get one in the, in the fairway and then somehow we keep parring on all these holes, but I've lost 12 balls and we're only on hole three. <laughs> It's right. We fudge the numbers. Like when it's good, it's really good. Make sure we write that down. But when it's bad, oh, I was just, you know, I didn't have my morning coffee or I was just in a bad state of mind. You know, somebody said this to me. And then so I just responded like this and that didn't count. Like God knows my heart, you know. And so we fudge the numbers. When, when we're bad, it's like, oh, that mulligan. But when we're good, it's like, oh, write that one down. Like, remember that? And so our lives become this tally of good versus bad. Our lives become this tally of good versus bad. But as I've already expressed, we're not great scorekeepers because we don't remember the whole pericope of our motives in our decision-making or the words that we've said. And in this tally of good versus bad, the real truth behind it is, is we are not the judge of us, that we're not the judge. We're not the one that is gatekeeping in heaven saying, can you get in or not? The standard that we're supposed to live by is God's own standard, and his standard is perfect. So the truth behind the matter is, is our good will never be good enough. Our good will never be good enough by God's standard because there's no one good enough. Romans 3.12 says it this way, all have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. No one who does good. So by the Bible standards, because all of us have sinned, all of us have sinned against a holy, perfect God, the Bible tells us that there's no such thing as a good person. There's no such thing as a good person. I want to try to explain this in the best 
way, best illustration I could, I could come up with, but it falls dramatically short of a good illustration. I just want to be upfront with that. Because the problem with our sin isn't necessarily what we've done. It's who we've done it to. It's who we've done it to. We've sinned against a holy God. It's not the fact that you've told a white lie. It's not the fact that you've done something wrong. That action, yes, it is wrong, but it doesn't, the weight of it isn't held in what you've done. It's who you've sinned against. Okay, I have uh, one son currently. He's about one years old in a few months and another one on the way. Um, he, he'll be born literally in four weeks, okay? Uh, hopefully, right, in four weeks. So, uh, so we, we'll have two boys. So imagine in a couple of years, our two boys, they grow up, they're five and six or six and seven, whatever the age may be. And one of them comes up to their brother and just clocks him right in the face. Boom, just punches him. Now dad is gonna try to figure out what just happened? He's going to intervene. He's going to try to give proper discipline where discipline is due. It's like, hey, don't hit your brother. Like, what happened? Explain this away to me, all the case, case may be. But imagine two weeks later, dad walks into the house and sees mommy getting clocked by one of the boys. The approach is going to be very different, just to say the least. Because it's not what you did. It's who you did it to. Because that's my wife, that's my bride, that's your mother. You do not. And you may disagree with the parenting tactics of handling situations differently, but the weight of the matter is when the brother wrongs the brother, yes, we step in. It's like, oh, we need to handle the situation and defuse it. But when it's mom that is getting the end of that, I don't care how that's handled. And I'm approaching it very differently because your sin and your disobedience, our disobedience to a holy and perfect God, what it does to that relationship is it doesn't just weigh it down, it separates us from God. Our sin separates us from God because he is holy, he is perfect, he is like no other. And so us trying to be good enough, it'll never get us there because our solution can't be ourselves. If we're separated from a holy God because of our sin, it us trying to be good enough, it won't build the bridge back to God because all of our works aren't going to get us there because we are separated from him. So if the solution is Jesus, I've built the problem and I haven't given you the solution of why Jesus is the answer. So let me do that. What's so different about Jesus? Well, number one, Jesus was the good we try to be. He was God. He is perfect. He came to this earth, lived a perfect life, always followed the Father's command in every way possible. He escaped being born in total depravity with a sin nature to wrong God's heart because he was born of a virgin. And you may be thinking, like, why does that matter? Like, why, is you, why are you bringing Christmas and Jesus' birth up into this? Well, we're, we're going to talk about the significance of Jesus' virgin birth uh, in two weeks in the kickoff of our Christmas series. So there's a shameless plug to come back in two weeks. Uh, and so Jesus was the good we try to be. And there's a reason. And, and the virgin birth is heavy theologically. And we want to teach you all about that in two weeks. But number two, Jesus, he gave himself up for us. He gave himself up for us. John in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 says it like this. He asked a rhetorical question. If anybody does sin, which the answer is yes, everyone does. But we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for our sins, but also the sins of the whole world. You see, what makes Jesus different isn't because he said some cool stuff. It's because he did something. 
He did it. He backed up his words with the truth of how he lived his life in perfection. He died a sacrificial death on our behalf. He was that atoning sacrifice. That word atoning means reconciliation between sinful humanity or mankind and a holy God. Jesus in his perfection atoned or restored, made it a way for us to come to God for the way that we broke it by sin. So to give this a full circle picture of what Paul tells us in Romans 5, that as the first Adam was our representative, and because of that, death came to us, and because of that, all of us have sinned, he, he ties up the bow with talking about the second Adam, or who he references Jesus as the second Adam. He says this, verse 19 in Romans 5, for just as through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, talking about the first Adam in the garden, Genesis 1 and 2, so also through the obedience of the one man, talking about Jesus, who he calls the second Adam later on, the many were made righteous. Many were made righteous. So the question is, is why Jesus? It's because he was the good we try to be. He did something about our sin. He went on our behalf. So how do you get Jesus? How do you get Jesus? The Bible says you should confess with your mouth, believe in your heart. Confess with your mouth, believe in your heart. And like, what am I confessing? What am I believing? Romans 10, 9 says it like this. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. We use language at Northridge of leader of your life, but you may not, you may think that's not strong enough. Master is another word. King is another word. Boss of your life is another word. If you just say, I'm going all in with you, Jesus. I'm modeling my life after you, following you with everything I am. And if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's what the Bible says. So here's my last question. I've asked you so many questions up to this point. How are, what are you doing with the gospel? The gospel, that word means good news. It means good news that Jesus, he came, he lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death on our behalf. What are you doing with it? No matter where you are, if you're at a Rochester campus, Webster, watching online, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, I want to pause right now in this moment and give you an opportunity to do so. The Bible says you need to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. And you can just pause right now and pray with me this simple prayer or pray your own prayer. So would you pause and would you pray with me for a moment? You can say something to the sin of Jesus. I know that I'm a sinner and I need a savior. Jesus, you're Lord. You're the leader. I want to make you the leader of my life and I ask you to forgive me of all of my sins. I believe you came, you lived a perfect life, you died a death on my behalf and I believe you're alive forevermore, that you rose back from the dead. Today, I I declare you as leader of my life, forgiver of my sins. Amen. And if you prayed that prayer, I want to invite you to take that next step of finishing out that verse of declaring with your mouth. I want you to share that with somebody. If you're watching online right now, I want you to type it in the chat, uh, connect with the host. If you're at one of our physical locations, connect it next. Tell someone, tell someone today, I made Jesus the leader of my life and the forgiver of my sins. But for most of you, you're probably a follower of Jesus. You're like, okay, Daniel, that's great. Let's go home. Let's watch football now. But I want to ask you the same question. What are you doing with the gospel. I opened up the message if it, earlier on a question of how would your loved ones, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers answer the question of how do I get to heaven? Well, hopefully you, you knew that answer already. 
But Paul says, after he says, confess in your mouth, believe in your heart, Jesus is Lord, God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. It's like we clap on that, we amen that. Like, yes, my eternity is secure. I'm gonna be with Jesus forever. But literally a few verses later, Paul confronts the Roman church with their lack of sharing the gospel like this. How can they call on one they've not heard or believed in? How can they believe in the one they've not heard? How can they hear without someone preaching or proclaiming to them? So my question for you is the same. What are you doing with the gospel? The good news that Jesus didn't just say some stuff, but he did it. And you have good news. And in a few days, you're probably going to be circled around a Thanksgiving table with loved ones who are far from God. My challenge to you is simple. Share the good news. Share how Jesus has changed your life. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you. Thank you for entrusting us with this good news. Thank you for telling us the hard truth that we needed to hear. The most kind words we could hear is a way to get to heaven. And God, I pray for people that are watching wherever they may be, that if they've never trusted you as the Lord of their life, the leader of their life, forgiver of their sins, that today would be the day that they could mark down that they started the relationship with Jesus. And God, I pray for Thanksgiving conversations, for conversations to come from people under the sound of my voice, God, that you would empower them and embolden them to be bold with their faith, to share the good news in everything they do, word and deed. In Jesus' name, amen.